from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 13 through 20. Isaiah 44, 13 through 20. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to follow along. This is the major prophet Isaiah. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning, and some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meat. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say. Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate it. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? I'm, I'm sure glad I don't have to sing the sermon. That's all I can say. You know, we live in a country that has believed in that old rugged individualism. And it's about pulling yourself by your, uh, by your own bootstraps, or today we might say your Nikes or whatever, as, as they used to say, bootstraps in those days, and, and achieving whatever you want to achieve if you set your mind to it. And there's truth in that. You know, you remember a few years ago, President Obama made a, a comment about you didn't build that. What he was trying to say was, you didn't build that all by yourself without any help from others. You know, you probably heard the joke about God sitting in heaven and a scientist tells him that, man, you know, we don't really need you anymore, God, because, you know, we figured out a way to create life, you know, out of nothing. And God says, really? Tell me about it. And the scientist says, well, we can take dirt and we can form it into a man and we can, you know, breathe life into it and create a man. And God says, well, that's interesting. Show me how you do that. And so the man bows down, he grabs some dirt, and he begins to shape it and form it in, in, the, in the form of a man. And God says, whoa, 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 just a minute. You go get your own dirt. The truth is, we don't build anything all by our little selves. None of us can make our own dirt. In fact, we had to buy some the other day. My wife and I have purchased a total of five different houses or homes during our married life. We did not build any of them. Someone else built them. We simply purchased them. We didn't even use our own money to purchase them. If you want to see me afterwards, I'll tell you how that works. 
Many of you have been in our home in Gladstone, but, you know, it, it, it really isn't our home. I mean, we, we're living in it, but it really does not belong to us. And I'm not referring really to the bank who has the mortgage either. I think you know what I mean. God says in Psalm 50, verse 12, For the world in its fullness are mine. In other words, everything you see when you look around belongs to God. God makes it very clear. You and I came into this world with nothing. We're going to leave this world with nothing. And even while we're here, we really don't own anything either, as Psalm 50, verse 12 teaches. The mistake that many individuals make is revealed, not not only those that lived during the time when John was just reading Isaiah, not only during that time, but in Romans 1.25, speaking about ungodly people who do not believe in God, Paul wrote, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And the context of Paul's remarks has to do with idolatry. So the question is, what's the lie for which they exchange the truth about God? Well, John just read it for us. Isaiah 44, 9 through 20 explains it. Idols were made by man out of wood and metal. Materials that were also used for other things. Isaiah mentions that you, speaking to the Jews of that day, you take wood... You burn it in order to keep warm. You cook your food over its coals. And then you carve the rest of it into an idol to which you bow down and worship. And in verse 20, Isaiah says, you can't even figure out that the idol you're holding in your hand is a lie. So the lie for which they exchange the truth about God is that a piece of wood is a god. You know, why, why do we worship anything? There are several reasons for that, but one of the reasons is because it's a way of expressing thanks. It's a way of expressing gratitude uh, or showing appreciation for what someone does for us. Wood certainly is a useful material, but it's God who created it and gives it its useful properties. You know, to worship the thing rather than the one who created it and provided it is absurd. I mean, it's just, you know, the craftsman who built this stool, this, this nice wood stool, it's beautiful work. Can you imagine that after he was done building this nice stool, he took the scraps, carved it into an idol, and then bowed down and worshipped it? I mean, that's, to us today, that's just totally absurd. And that's why Satan doesn't tempt us in that way today. Satan is so deceptive, though, that he can fool us into acting absurd. Here's what I mean. You know, last week we talked about the gods in the temple of pleasure. The gods we discussed were food, sex, and entertainment. There's another temple where many of us like to worship, and that temple is the temple of power, as Sam mentioned a little bit ago. The temple of power has many gods. We'll consider only three. And the first one is the god of success. You know, being successful, it's pretty important to us. You know, we, we believe it's up to us, of course, to achieve success. 
But, you know, the problem is we measure success by, by what we've acquired, what we've achieved. We believe that success is measured by how many material possessions we have, how many degrees we have, how many deeds we do, how many, I don't know, friends we have on Facebook. I don't count success that way but because I don't have any. But Here's an illustration from, from a book, Gods at War, which uh, we've been looking at. In 2011, a team of UCLA psychologists studied the values of TV characters in the shows most popular with preteens over the years. For example, Andy Griffith and, and Lucy from the 60s, Happy Days characters and Laverne and Shirley from the 70s, and American Idol and Hannah Montana from more recent times. The most frequent value of contemporary shows was found to be fame. Between 67 and 97, the top value had been, back in the 60s, community feeling or being part of a group. And that value suddenly dropped to 11th place in 1997. The second most frequent value from the 60s and 70s was being kind and helpful to others. That plunged from second to 13th place by the 90s. So the predominant message of today's preteen shows seems to be that a successful life is all about finding a way to be famous. One of the researchers said, I was shocked, especially by the dramatic changes in the last 10 years. If you believe that television reflects the culture as I do, then American culture has changed drastically. You know, in the Gospels is the narrative of the rich young ruler, Luke chapter 18. He comes to Jesus and asks him, what, do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 18. Now, this is a man who has acquired and achieved a great deal in a short period of time. I mean, this guy's successful. He's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. And so he wants to know what he can do to be successful at the next level. You know, he, he's already been successful in the world according to man's standards. You know, now he wants to know what he needs to do in order to be successful in the next life. And the word inherit in the Greek also means to acquire or to obtain. This man, based on what he knew about the law, he wanted to be successful at obtaining or acquiring eternal life. And, and you can't blame him for that thinking. You know, but Jesus, you know, we know that Jesus came to teach us a more excellent way. Jesus was ushering in a new covenant, as Jeremy uh, told us a few moments ago. Jesus' answer was to this man, keep the commandments. And, and that's exactly what he was hoping for. He said, I've done that. And, and then, uh, you know, Jesus said something else. One thing you still lack. You know, the commandments were kind of a checklist. You know, that he had kind of checked them off. I did this, I did this, I did this. But Jesus gave him this answer he wasn't prepared for. There's this other thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And, and if you've read that, you know what the reaction was. Because that's not what he wanted to hear. Matthew says he went away sad. Now, why would you go away sad if you were rich and young and a ruler? Why would you go away sad if you had the kind of success that this man had? 
this man had been very successful, but unfortunately, you see, God doesn't define success that way. Success is being a servant, not a ruler. Success is putting the needs of others ahead of yourself. Success is not about what you have. It's about what you give in the mind of God. So what is your definition of success? Is it, is it like the ruler's? Or is it more like God? Another God in the temple of power is the God of money. We knew we were going to talk about that. You know, the thing about money, it's not like drugs or alcohol where you can just give it up and say, I'm not touching that stuff anymore. I mean, I suppose you could, but I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, money's more like food. I mean, you can't just give it up. You have to learn how to manage it. You know, money's like wood. It's a very useful resource, but why would you worship money instead of the God who provides it? Again, it's absurd. The Lord knew that money would be a problem for us because out of the 38 parables uh, that are written, 16 deal with money. And, you know, money is one of Satan's greatest lies. You know, Satan tells us Satan tells us money can bring happiness. It can bring security. It can bring influence. But what Satan doesn't tell us is that money also corrupts. It's unstable. It can ruin your life. It can bring you great unhappiness. And it never satisfies. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And of course, the famous verse by Paul that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So why would we love something that has the potential to destroy us? I mean, that's like your daughter asking if she can go to the prom with a convicted sex offender. Jesus said you can't serve God and money in Matthew 6.24. And money is often God's greatest competitor, as we saw in the narrative of this rich young ruler. He chose wealth. He chose wealth over following Jesus. Really? Really? He chose the wooden idol over God. Very foolish. Now think about this for a minute. You know, we're all going to live forever someplace. We're all going to live forever. So the time we spend on earth, you know, eventually it's going to be very, very minuscule, right? I mean, compared to eternity, it's going to be like a grain of sand on the seashore. So since our life is going to be infinitely longer in eternity, wouldn't it make more sense to focus more on providing for our future in eternity than providing for this life? We're focusing all of our efforts on providing for this life. John Tillotson once wrote, He who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment but a fool forever. Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth that don't last. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven that last for eternity. And one of the best examples of that's in parable parable that Jesus told in Luke 12, 16. 
this guy come up to Jesus and said, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. And so Jesus told this parable of a farmer who had great wealth. And on top of everything he already had, he had his fields produced a great crop one year. His, his, the existing storage barns he had were overflowing. Now he has this huge crop, and he doesn't have room to store it all. And so, you know, he, his decision was, he thought about it briefly, and his decision was, well, I'll just tell it to tear down my existing barns and build bigger ones. And that way, you know, I can take it easy. I can, you know, eat, drink, be merry, live life, not have a care in the world, not worry about it. What did Jesus say to him? You fool. Because tomorrow you're going to die, and then who's going to get all that you have stored up for yourself? So this man's main concern was to have enough so that he could live the easy life. He wanted to make sure he had everything he would ever need or want in this life. I mean, this, and it says this man's life was all about him. He talked about my crops, my barns, my grain. And as Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but then forfeits his soul? Jesus said this is how it will be with anyone who is not rich toward God. When money is your God, you're going to be rich more toward yourself than you are to God. In Jesus' parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16, this, this parable always baffled me for uh, years. The master tells the manager that he's going to fire him because he's been mishandling his money, his, his resources. And so the manager realizes, I need to do something. You know, I'm, I'm losing my job. I'm going to lose my home. I need, I need to make sure I have a place to go when I lose my job. So what does he do? He goes to all these creditors who owes his master money and says, just cut it in half, you know, or just, just pay this amount. It was always a lesser amount. Just, just pay this. And so, you know, of course the creditors are thrilled. You know, the master even commended the unjust steward, but not, not because he was being cheated by him, but because the manager was thinking about his future. You know, he, he dealt with money and people in a way that could secure his future. He was hoping that by cutting the debts of these creditors, they would welcome him into their homes, which is probably what happened. And Jesus then says, this is what we should do. Okay, now listen. We should manage our master's money not by cheating the master, but by using it in such a way that blesses others and secures our eternal home. Psychologists have studied what makes people happy. Not uh, only do many of them find that money cannot buy it, but the opposite seems to hold true in many cases. Materialism is toxic for happiness, says University of Illinois psychologist Ed Diener. His research indicates that those who are less concerned about accumulating and spending are more likely to experience contentment. University of Michigan psychologist Christopher Peterson indicates that forgiveness is the trait most strongly linked to happiness. How about that? Forgiveness. He says it's the queen of all virtues and probably the hardest to come by. Third God in the temple of power. God of achievement. How often have you begun the new year by saying, you know, I'm going to study the Bible more this year. I'm going to read. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to church more. And then by the time February and March roll around, it just gets crowded out of your schedule. 
know, we are a very achievement-oriented society, and it spills over into our religion. When it comes to church, we want to start on time, and we want to stop on time because we have things we've got to do. We've got places we've got to go. There are other more important things scheduled. If you've ever been to a worship service in a third world country, you quickly learn that starting time and ending time to them does not mean the same as starting time and ending time to you. They don't start on time. They don't end on time. And it usually is a whole lot longer than ours, as I pointed out last week. And why is that? Why is that? For one thing, worship is the highlight of their week. How many of you can actually say, that worship is the highlight of your week. We are involved in so many activities and have so many commitments and, and way too many toys to play with, and, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody. And again, it's worshiping wood instead of the one who supplies it. You know, remember Jesus in, in Luke 10:38 when he visited the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Remember, Martha, well, she was busy. I mean, she was making sure her guest was comfortable while her sister Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. And Martha, you know, she got a little perturbed. She said, Lord, don't you care about me? You know, Mary's just sitting there and I'm doing all this work. Tell her to help me. And she didn't get quite the answer that she thought she would get from Jesus. Jesus' answer was, Martha, Martha. You are distracted by so many things. And Mary has chosen that which is of highest importance right now. You know, that's what the God of achievement does. You know, the God of achievement distracts us. You know, the God of achievement causes us to focus on all the tasks that need to be done and causes us at times to forego the more important tasks that should be done. You know, our, our, our schedules get so crowded with less important activities that we don't really have time to do the more important activities. And one of the reasons that the God of Achievement wins the daily battle for our time is that it's something we can measure. We can see it. We like to see when we have accomplished something. We, you can see that the dishes got clean. You can see that the grass got mowed. You know, you can see when the groceries are purchased and put in the cupboard. When you get through spending time reading the Word, when you've spent time praying to God, you can't really see the immediate result. But when you wash the car, you can see the immediate result. It's the tyranny, as they say, of the urgent. It's activities that need to be done right now. That was the struggle that Martha had. You know, Martha, she's seeing, oh my goodness, you know, the Son of God is in my I've got to go change the towels. I've got to put clean sheets on the bed. You know, I've got to clean the toilet. I've got to put something in the crock pot. That's what Jesus, I mean, you can imagine. I mean, I know some of you have been in that situation before. Those activities are not bad. It's just that they weren't better at that moment. That's the point Jesus was making. You know, Martha was concerned about what Jesus thought of her life. And Mary was more concerned about what Jesus thought of life. 
Jesus told Martha that Mary chose what was better at, at that moment. And that's what we have to do. We have to make the better choices in our life. We have to choose to engage in the activities that are better first, those that have more eternal implications. There's nothing wrong with working hard and setting goals to achieve, but when they steal your heart, they become an idol. The gods of success, money, and achievement, they're all about power. You know, the the power to get the things you want in this world. Is is that your goal? If it is, if there are things that you want in this world, if that's your goal, you've been deceived. You may get everything you want in this world, but I guarantee you, when you stand before God on the Day of Judgment, you're going to realize that you spent your life worshiping wood. How absurd it was. If you want power, if you want real power, come to the temple of God. I mean, he promises that if you worship in the temple of God and you give your life over to him, he'll give you the power of his spirit, the greatest power in the world, which will give you to, uh, the power to achieve the things that God desires, you know, things you never dreamed you could achieve. Power to overcome sin. The power to overcome fear. Power to overcome the world. So you can choose God, you know, or you can choose a piece of wood. It's up to you. This morning, if you want to choose God, we'll give you that opportunity to do that. As we sing this song, it's a time to respond. If the Spirit is stirring in you and you want to respond to God, or if you have a burden that you need to someone to share with you, let us know. I'll be standing down here. One of the elders will be here as well. There will be an elder in the back. You can respond by coming this direction or going in that direction. Either way, please respond as we stand.